0: To do this let me show you a better way be face in face. Well hi folks this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, July the 5th, 2021, and this is episode 2906 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, and we're going to do good old-fashioned listener feedback show. This show will be 100% driven by the audience. These are all questions that were sent to me. In the last week or so, maybe the oldest one might be close to three weeks old. Most of it's like this last week. If you want to submit a question for me or a topic for me for a show like this, the way you do that, send me an email. Jack at the dot com is my email address. Jack at the dot com. I don't have a secret email address. All my email actually goes to one place. Even the other email addresses I have, all they do is forward to that one. But there is a formula to make it more likely that I'll see your email and respond to it some way, form or another, either on air, or sometimes directly. I probably responded to two or three dozen emails today with quick questions, how do I, what do I, that were easy answers that didn't need to be on the air. Uh, So I do try to help you out, and I put a lot of stuff on social media as well. Or you might get on a show like this. The formula, TSPC, in the subject line, like it's a word, all capital letters, TSPC. I always run filter checks on my email. Sometimes it takes a while for me to find them. Sometimes I get lazy and I don't dig stuff out of the spam box for a while, but sooner or later I do, and I look at least at every one of those emails. Key is I look at them. I do not have time to read them. You know what that means? I look at them like a picture. If you follow the rest of this formula, I will know what you're asking me, and you will be much more likely to hear back from me. Give me your question or your comment in a single sentence, not a long run on sentence, a simple, proper sentence like you would got, got a good. You know, good uh, check mark for when you were in English school, you know, in English school, in uh, English class in grade school. Okay, simple sentence, right? One question, direct. Then, if there is a source, give me the link to it. And then, after that, give me any details. If there's no source, give me details anyway. But make a space. This is going to help you a lot with just, not just me, other people. After your question, hit return a couple times. Put a space in there. Do not send me a block of text. It hurts my head. And I don't read it. And it hurts my head because of how much I have to read every day. Got a bunch of stuff for you today, but before I get into it, I want to hit you with that TikTok reminder again. I really do. July the 5th. It's insane. It's insane. And it's weird, too. I don't know about you guys. I felt like June lasted forever. I was talking about that with Nicole Sauce Wednesday before on Loose the Goose, and she said the same thing. When I said it, she like rolled her eyes, like, you know, only a woman can. And it was like, yeah, man, like, June just seemed... But but all of, you know, all first half of 2021, oh, my God, what happened to it? It's gone. It's like, boom! Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks first all. We are now closer to Christmas Day than we are to the last New Year's Day that we just had. Really think about that. We are closer to Christmas. We're way closer to Thanksgiving. We're way closer to fall than we are to last winter. And that means that time is moving. that Sometimes when you feel like it moves so fast on you, that's because it moves whether you do or not. So either you move along with time in advancing the things you want in life, or... Life moves past you, because time is never static. With that, uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. I have a great quote for you by Plato. Yes, I am a redneck hippie duck farmer, but occasionally I quote people like Socrates and Plato. And I'm going to tell you how it actually applies to a discussion I recently just had on Next Door about snakes. Yeah, snakes and irrational fears. Plato would know a little bit about that. Maybe not the snakes as much as the irrational fears. And the people who brought you the concept of the trigger warning, the social justice warrior microaggression crowd, they're now triggered by the term triggered. The people who brought you the trigger warning are now triggered by the word triggered. And yet, when I do this segment, I'm going to go to a complete, like, lunatic website about how we use words wrong, and then I'm going to, in some instances, maybe for different reasons, agree with them, because I am, if nothing else, actually an open-minded person. But I'll also tell you that my agreement does not mean I want them to get what they want, even in the places I agree with them, because what they want is control of language, rather than saying, hey, maybe you should think about what you're saying, because possibly, in the words of a movie that you guys browbeat me into watching from the 80s, which was horrible, and an hour and 45 minutes of life, I will never get back, The only thing that ever came good out of this movie were the little one-liners. And in this case, that word does not mean what you think it means. Some of you know the movie now. And if you don't know the movie, never, ever let anybody ever, ever talk you into watching that horrible, horrible, awful movie. But it does give us things like that word does not mean what you think it means. And then I have somebody that commented on my video that was part of the episode that I did on anarcho-thinking and answering questions as an anarchist. A simple question that opens the order idea opens the door to anarcho-thinking, even to the people that might seem the most closed-minded. I've talked about this before, but I've never really talked about it in this way, so we'll talk about that for a moment. Electric vehicles, that never happened. They're five years ahead of the already aggressive timeline now, according to Ernest & Young. Uh, that's interesting. What's more interesting is what Dylan sent me. Dylan works in the electrical, uh, generation world, electro power generation world, and has some thoughts about what this actually means. Not whether or not the cars are coming, because the cars are coming, but what it actually means from a standpoint of being able to like charge all the cars. Like whether you're charging the car at your house or charging the car, like at a charging station or what have you, what this actually means and where there's going to be tremendous growth. And I'm going to tell you why I think it actually may make lines at charging stations or fuel stations, resupply for vehicle energy. we got to find a new word to use for this, huh? So we don't offend anybody, or at least so we're more precise. Um, shorter. Absolutely. I know it sounds crazy, but you'll hear me out. Money market regulators want to reduce the liquidity of funds. And once again, we have a fenord the headline and how it's being presented is totally counter to what's actually going on, even though the reporting actually tells you what's actually going on. Another great little bit of feedback from a listener here. And um, another BT, uh, B- Bitcoin ETF is being proposed. In fact, being announced. I'm going to build this. Um, there's a gal that many of you all may know her name and, and many of you won't. Kathy Wood. Uh, Kathy Wood is a, the head of something called ARK Invest. And some of you are familiar with the ARK cryptocurrency. The two things are not related in any way. ARK Invest is an investment firm that manages investments that, among other things, is involved with cryptocurrency. Specifically to the cryptocurrency industry is what it, what is marketed as. Um, but they're not related to each other. But this is actually really big news. But the bigger news, the stuff you tune in to hear me talk about, is in what's not in the headline. And it has nothing really to do with ARK Invest or their particular Bitcoin ETF. It has to do with something that I think is going on in the cryptocurrency world right now that nobody seems to see but me. So either I'm wrong, and that's possible, or people are just not paying attention to something that might be the most momentous undertone and foreshadowing of what's to come from Bitcoin ever. And I really mean that. And I've been talking about it here and there. When I say it, you'll be like, yeah, you kind of said stuff like that, but okay. Yeah, this is really important to understand. Um, Then I have somebody who wrote me about seeing technology and the results of technology indicate what the next technology is, which I think we'll talk about when we talk about the electric vehicles thing as well. But he's basically saying, doesn't it make sense that maybe your virtual nation concept is about to happen? thing I've talked about for years, virtual nations. And it's because cryptocurrency is reaching kind of a critical mass, and it is the technology that must be fully developed, not even developed so much as embraced, used by enough people, before the next wave is the virtual nation. And it actually made me think, am I wrong, even though I'm right, about virtual nations? Was my original concept, not the thing, But the form of the thing, flawed, are they already here? Did we just see it happen in Miami at the Bitcoin conference? Did we just see it play out in that the people that were not invited to the Bitcoin conference because the Bitcoin people were maximalists and only wanted to talk about Bitcoin, and even if you did something else, if you came there, you could only have a booth that only talked about the Bitcoin thing. If you wanted to speak, if you did stuff with other things, that's fine, but you better not say anything about it. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And because those people believe all coins other than Bitcoin are shitcoin, Immediately, a bunch of people together, a very successful, like, co-event that was, you know, in its own venue called Shitcoin. They, like, played, and, and people went, like, crazy, and a lot of people went to the Bitcoin thing and then went over to the Shitcoin thing. And, of course, it was tongue-in-cheek calling it Shitcoin because there re- but was that two virtual nations? Was that some people with dual citizenship? Do we already have virtual nations? In some ways, I think we do. And does that mean my, my original idea was flawed? Does it need to stay more fragmented or less fragmented in its ability to offer exchange? Is social media turning into virtual nations? And will it ever be able to do what I envisioned if that's all that it is? Or might it be more powerful? These are all questions I'm going to talk about. I do not pretend that I already have the answer to them. And then, a stupid yet smart piece of advice from a chicken feed producer. And we're going to examine it with logical thought, because I think it's a good lesson in how to use logical thought processes and understand why some people say things that they say, that you're like, I don't need to hear that. Maybe other people do. Yeah. And then what role does Agenda 2030, or The Great Reset, play in my advice to get the hell out of the cities? Some, but maybe not as much as you'd have thought. We're going to do all that today. It's going to be a great show. But let's start off with reminding you about our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is J.M. Bullion. J.M. Bullion, if I want to buy silver or gold, it's where I go, jmbullion.com. Why? Because they give me a discount on my silver and gold, and nobody else does that. Um, they, and, and because they ship my order for free, and because they sponsor my show, which, which you do as well. And because if there's ever a problem, and there really isn't any problems, but if there ever was a problem, I can get the president on the phone in like five minutes that I can have the president answer my email personally to me if there's ever a problem for my audience members. And and in years and years ago, I'm talking like seven years ago, ancient history in the world of podcasting, there were some problems in some of the process at Jambullion. And when I got in touch with Michael, their president, and explained the problems, do you know what he said to me? Thank you. I'm not kidding you. Guys, dead honest, You know, honest as Jack can be. This man thanked me for pointing to problems and helping make his process better. And boy, did he mean what he said because then all those little occasional, hey, I'm worried about this or whatever, just went away. I hear nothing about J.M. Bullion now other than, hey, they're great. Check them out today at jambullion.com. Next up today, the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead, bulkammo.com, also a long-term sponsor. People are big on, like, guns drying up and not being able to get guns. Guns are expensive. And when you buy a gun, you have a gun. And you have a gun for a long time. And, mo I mean, I'm not... Don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean this in any negative way toward people that own lots of guns. I own lots of guns. Most people don't need to own more than, at the most, a half a dozen guns. I mean, really. Like, think about it. Now, I do... So again, I'm not putting down the person that's an enthusiast or a collector or whatever. I'm just saying, like, I've done whole shows on, like, here's a, here's a four-gun battery, and we can add two more and a six-gun battery. You can do anything you want in the world. You can defend your home. You can go collect dinner. Uh, you can target practice. Right? So the, the concept here is simple that, You know, there's people that have a thousand guns or something like that and 20, you know, sliding freaking, you know, wall lockers or something, you know, huge vaults or something. But most people are going to have a half a dozen to a dozen firearms at, at the top end. But ammo works differently. When we fire ammo, it's gone. It either needs to be reloaded or replaced. And that's why it's so damn hard right now and has been for years to stock up on ammo. So you should always keep an eye on the inventory at BulkAmmo.com and always give them your business and always keep building up that ammo supply. Because here's the thing about ammo. People ask me things like, Jack, should I vacuum seal my ammo? No, just put your ammo in a cool, dry space. It'll last longer than you. It is infinitely storable. That's why you need to be using BulkAmmo.com. And don't forget to get your discount. They are an MSB supporter. All right, with that, let's start off with this uh, quote of the day. It's a really short, simple quote by Plato. And it is, courage is knowing what not to fear. And it's one of those great quotes because it can stand alone, but it has so much breath. It may, When I saw that today uh, at Brainy Quote, which is where I get most of these quotes from, it made me think of a conversation I had just this morning on Next Door. So, so do you understand here, putting this in context, the people that live around me, and when I say around me, I don't necessarily mean on my road, but I mean... In the area that next door, which is like Facebook kind of for your neighborhood, your like your subdivision, like multiple subdivisions, like a regional – it's like a regional Facebook, a fairly small, tight region. A few thousand people may in a highly populated area. They are snake phobics, right? They are just – I mean, every third freaking post is, I saw a snake. Uh, including one of a guy who went into this lady's house who worked for Fort Worth Animal Control because there was a snake in her house, and he told her the snake was a water moccasin. The snake was not a water moccasin, a.k.a. a cottonmouth, a venomous animal. It was a plain belly water snake, which I and several other people that are actually informed saw and pointed this out. But this goes on over and over and over and over and over. And what happens is people get involved in this discussion that have no business at all, giving people advice about snakes, especially in the realm of are they venomous or not. A lady today posted a picture of a snake called a coachwhip snake, completely harmless. And there was all these people posting about, well, I can't really see if the head's triangular or not, or if it's got vertical pupils, and it looks a little bit light-colored to be a water moccasin. And I posted, if you think, if you can't look at this animal and say it's harmless, not necessarily what it is, but it's harmless, you don't need to be giving people advice about snakes. And they said, okay, I know that probably upsets people, but I'm gonna I'm gonna post some more stuff here. This is this is to help you. And there's literally seven snakes that can exist where we live. Okay, that can be venomous. Seven. That's it. There are no more than seven, unless somebody lets a gaboon viper go in your backyard or something like that. There's seven. Of those seven, there's three that are even likely to be found. The other four. Are about as likely as winning a scratcher ticket that you found in the driveway or the the parking lot. You you walk out the parking lot, somebody dropped it. You pick it up, scratch it off, win ten grand. Like a pygmy rattlesnake here, <laughs> just it, it's just not likely. I'm just going to leave it at that, right? And and the ones that you we you're likely to find around here are western diamondbacks, uh, cottonmouths, and copperheads. And to be fair to these people, one of the reasons they're freaked out so much the ones that live down toward the lake that's, that's south of me. There's a lot of copperheads here. More, I, I've seen more legitimate photos of copperheads in this area than I've seen just about anywhere else. There's not as many as people think, but there's, there, to their credit, there's quite a few. But I'm like, copperhead, a western diamondback, and a cottonmouth are incredibly easy to identify. They literally look nothing like any other snake around here. They're They're incredibly easy to identify. And so if you learn these three snakes... Then you can pretty much not be afraid of anything that's not one of them. And here's the other four, and, and one that you might find, but it's unlikely, is a coral, which is really obvious, and you're only going to get bit if you go playing with it. And then there's three other snakes, and and those are like you found a unicorn, but you can still learn them. And two of them are rattlers, so I mean, this is this is not hard to to sort out, right? Like this is this is really easy to sort out. There's seven, you learn those seven, now you're not afraid anymore. How does that apply to what Plato said? Courage is knowing what not to fear. As soon as you have the knowledge of what's dangerous, the only way you can have a fear after you've eliminated the potentially dangerous is an irrational fear. Now you have to use more knowledge to destroy the irrational fear. Additionally, let's say that somebody says to me, Jack... There's a snake in my backyard, and it's a copperhead. I'm probably going to roll my eyes and expect to see a, a rat snake, because that's generally what happens around here. But I'll also be like, well, maybe it is. I mean, it could be. You didn't say it was a king cobra, right? So, okay. And I go in the backyard, and there it is. It's a copperhead. I'm standing 14 feet away from it, and I'm looking at it, and it's laying in the sun, sunning itself. Am I afraid of it? No, because I know it doesn't fly. It can't leap 14 feet through the air, right? Right? So I'm not afraid of it. The person that's afraid of it shouldn't be afraid either. What they're afraid of is it might move somewhere and be somewhere and I'll step on it. That could have happened anyway. You don't walk around with a rational fear. Now that you know it's there, we can remove it. You, If you do not know how, you probably should not. If you want to kill it, I'm not even going to be upset. I'm not going to be upset if someone kills a snake. What I get upset is when they kill a snake and they act like they they, they defeated a black-maned man-eating a lion on the, on the Serengeti Plains with a spear that was trying to kill three children when they did it. Like, they're bragging about it. They said, it could have killed me. No, it was sitting there minding its own business. You clubbed it. That's how weak it is. But if I went and removed it, since I know how to do so, the reason I'm not afraid to remove it is I have the knowledge of it. And this applies to, this is why Plato said it in the first place. It applies to everything. People that are afraid of cryptocurrency do not have enough knowledge of it. People that are afraid to invest in general do not have enough knowledge. People that are afraid to start a business do not have enough knowledge. So since they don't know what not to fear, they fear the entirety. They fear the entirety. Well, what if what if the CIA made Bitcoin? Okay, first of all, if, if you knew anything about Bitcoin, you know that's not the case, right? But if they did, why do you fear it anyway? If and, and if you can articulate why, sure. But I don't know. It's not a valid reason to fear something. The entire way that we have built civilization is by destroying fear with knowledge. But here's the other side. As we have built civilization by destroying fear with knowledge, the way we've made control, maintained control of civilization is through the suppression of and manipulation of knowledge upon the masses. That's why people believe in a system that is illegitimate. Because they don't have enough knowledge of the system, its origins, where it came from. Most people have things they believe emphatically that they would go to their deathbed decrying belief in, but they cannot articulate why they believe them. And while that is bad, what is worse is when those things lead to fear, and fear leads to improper action when that improper action could become proper action with the addition of knowledge. Even if something is legitimately worth being afraid of, without proper knowledge, your mitigation strategy is flawed. Courage is knowing what not to fear. With that, let's go on to another one. Okay, I'm going to go quick on this one. But it's an interesting thing to me. There's a long article... And you can read it if you want to. I have a link in the show notes. Uh, even the phrase trigger warning is now off limits. And this person kind of seems like they started out as kind of a purple breathing social justice warrior and was a real fan of saying they instead of he or she, you know, when they'll come back, right? Because you don't really know, right? They, like, which to me is already nonsensical, but at least you understand the place where this person's coming from. And they're like, this has gone too far. And the left is eating itself at this point. But they, this person linked over to Brandis University's Prevention Advocacy and Resource Center's article on language that doesn't say what we mean. And there's some real stupidity here. Um, oppressive language is everything going on right now. If you say, well, with everything going on right now, I feel that you're being oppressive, right? Because the alternative should be things like police brutality, protests, Black Lives Matter, COVID nineteen, et cetera. Name what you are referring to. Yeah, maybe, but do the people around you know what you're saying? Like this is somewhat legitimate, actually, with everything going on right now. Do I know what you're because if you say with if you say here with everything going on right now, first of all, you probably won't. What people will say right now, I would say several months ago and back, would have said around here right now, with all this bullshit going on, nobody in their right mind from here would be confused that they meant the COVID-19 pandemic bullshit. But that's, what, that's what they were talking about. But if you were somewhere where people don't know what you're talking about, I don't like phrases like this myself, but I don't want to control somebody else's use of them, and I don't find it oppressive. I find it inaccurate. They have some other ones that I actually agree with, and I think that the mainstream media is the biggest offender of using the improper language. Again, I don't want to like. I don't consider it oppressive. Maybe it is when the mainstream media is using this one. Think about this term, child prostitute. No, that what this what this resource says is you should refer to that person as a child who has been trafficked. I agree at least, right? Um, sex with an underage person. No, the, the word you should use for that is rape. I agree. Non-consensual sex. Rape. I agree. And their, their, their reasoning here is sex with someone without their consent is rape. It is important to name this. I agree. I completely agree. I find it reprehensible that, when a news personality speaking about somebody like a celebrity says he was accused of sex with an underage person. And I don't know that I would use the term child who has been trafficked. I would use (laughs) forcible sex with a minor, rape of a minor. Even if it's not forcible, it's rape. There is a age limit of consent. We should call it what it is. And I guess that one, when being used by people with positions of authority... I could even get, get on, on the track with these people of saying that's oppressive. What I'm trying to point out here is these people are nuts. And, and here's what I mean by nuts. Female identifying, depending on what you mean. <laughs> male identifying. Women including trans women. Female bodied. Male bodied. Cisgender women, men, assigned female. Like this, this one is so insane. Like I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. You're trying to clarify and now you're so worried about offending somebody. Because these terms imply that a person's identity isn't real or that their body defines them in a different way than they might identify. No, bullshit. It's very simple. If you were born with balls, you're a dude. If you were born without balls, you're a woman. If you were born with both, you know, like vagina and male genitalia at the same time, then you are an oddity known as a hermaphrodite. How you identify doesn't change what you are. So I'm pointing out that people that I think are ridiculous are not always wrong. In fact, that's the way you sell a lie. You use some truth in it. I don't think that's what's going on. I think they are uh, serious about this because here's another thing. I am going to kill myself. You should say, I am really upset. Joking about suicide is harmful and belittles a problem as people who may be seriously considering suicide or have in the past. See, this is what we're trying to sterilize and sanitize language. And these are the same people now that say we cannot say a trigger warning. Now we have to say there's a content, content notice. Like these people are delusional, but they're not always wrong. They're not always wrong. The question is, what do you do with this concept? And I think it is that we strive to be precise enough in our speaking and our language that we mean what we say and we say what we mean and that we're understood. And that we're understood. If we're actually not understood, then I believe we have a problem. What we actually have now though is a whole freaking I don't even know what you call it, like, like a, a a an open insane asylum of people that are looking for something to be upset and offended by, and they we we've actually solved so many problems that we now have to refer to a mother as a birthing person to not upset these people. So, (laughs) this is where you go into the realm of insanity. And just because somebody's functional doesn't mean they're not insane. This is insanity. I agree that if you refer to someone who had sex with a child they paid to have sex with, you have a trafficked child who was raped. I, I agree that when you say the person had sex with an underage woman, there is no such thing as an underage woman. There is a woman and there is a girl. That would be statutory rape of a minor, thank you. I agree with the precision of the language. But I do not agree with the enforcement thereof, and somehow you are an oppressor if you use a colloquialism or a well-known phrase. And you, I, I think people are like, why, why are you even spending this much time on this, Jack? You said to go quick. I'm going to go quick. We're going to move on really, really fast. Because it's a mechanism of control. And this is why, years and years ago, I would occasionally use the word on the show that triggers some people. I know I'm not supposed to say it triggers you because triggering you might trigger you, but retarded. And I would get these long, multi-paragraph emails about how hurtful that can be to someone who actually has a special needs child. My entire response was, would you refer to this child as retarded? And I would get a no. And then I'd get a bunch of bullshit, but I'd get a no first, right? And so I would ignore all the bullshit, and I, and I would email them back and say, when I said retarded... Were you in any way confused about the behavior that I was speaking about? And does it apply to this child you're so concerned with? And then I would get another response with no and a whole bunch of bullshit. And I would just respond with, go read my questions and your first word answer to both of them. And please do not bother me about this anymore. And the reason I stood so firm on that is as soon as you let people begin to control your language, you allow them to control you. This is why some of you struggle with the fact that, oh my god, I would listen, I would let my child listen to this show. But Jack occasionally curses. Sometimes he even says, oh my god, the F word. You remember from, uh, Christmas story, the queen mother of all curse words, right? Oh my god, no, eat the soap, all that. Like, listen guys, where does your bullshit come from? Those of you that are so offended by a word like bullshit. Where's this list of words that are bad words? And who made it? Who decided? Who decided you can't say shit, but you can say poop? Because I promise you I can express a far more profane thought with the word poop if I choose to. Incredibly, disgustingly profane. I won't do it because I'm not a profane person. Okay? I use a word that makes sense for the thought and the emotion that I'm feeling. That's why that word exists. And what'll happen is someone will say, well, that these are not connected. They're absolutely connected. This is the spiral that we went through. The seven words thou shalt not say on TV or thou shalt be sanctioned, financed, and put out of business. George Carlin had a bit on it. The seven words you can't say. To now, oh, we can't say retarded because it might offend somebody we weren't speaking about. To now we have to issue a trigger warning if we might talk about a subject that might upset somebody who went through something related to it at all. To we, now we have to ask a person which pronouns they prefer, and if they say something absolutely insane like Z, we must use them, or we're oppressive and we're committing microaggressions. To only See, when somebody says, well, h- how are they offended by the term they created, trigger warning. This is what happens when you proceed into the world of lunacy. This is why I will not censor my speech. I will not change my terminology unless I believe that the use of the term or the use of the word or the use of the phrase or the use of the colloquialism itself is not well understood. If I honestly believe that there's a communications problem, I'll change the term. Otherwise, you can go screw. And I don't think anybody doesn't understand that one. Okay? Just saying. And I think we all need to start thinking this way. And we need to start teaching our children this way because this is how you control a society. You dumb down their thinking, you control their language, and you use fear where we started today against them. See, these are actually related, these topics today. It's crazy. All right. Next. um, One way to open up people to thinking in a more anarcho way, to being a little bit more open to the concept of anarchy. This came from... The video I did with the podcast last week on a- answering questions about anarchy. And I've absolutely talked about using this concept before, and I've actually talked about this concept being a better way to govern before, but I've never talked about using it as a way to open a discussion and the mind about anarchy. This came from Whitey Quartz on YouTube. A good way to get a foot in the door of people's minds is to ask people if they'd be open, okay, with voluntary taxation. Most people like the idea of having a checklist of state functions they would be able to choose or not choose to fund. It's only a small step after that for them to realize it's basically what anarchy would look like. So what he's talking about, and the first time I ever heard about this was in a book by Richard Bach. And I believe it was nothing by chance. and It was kind of either an alternate dimension or a time travel thing. I don't exactly remember. But he ends up in in, in the backseat of an aircraft. And he, his older version, younger version, alternate universe version, whatever, is flying it. And it looks like he's about to kill the other pilot. But it's just like a war game. And even if there's a conflict, it's all settled without the laws of life anymore. It's like his utopian world. And he starts having this conversation with this alternate persona and says, well, so you guys don't have taxes. And his alternate persona says, no, we have taxes, we have government, we have all that stuff. But, you know, a lot of things that government used to do, they don't really do a lot anymore and a lot of things they never did that they should have done, they do now. And he says, well, how'd you do that? Did you vote in the right people or whatever? And he's like, that doesn't work. And so he goes, well, what do you do? He said, well, every year when you file your taxes, you get a list of all the things that government does. And you assign a percentage to each one. Like if you really think national defense is important, you might put 50% down. And if you really think education is really important, you might put 30% down. And then you've only got 20% left. You have to start making decisions now. Basically, you took earmarking, in a way, from the government and the Congress. You gave it to the people. And then the government is told, okay, you guys go ahead and make and enforce the laws. But we're gonna con- because you don't have um, any discipline in controlling the purse strings. We're going to, and so you could completely eliminate something government was doing that you didn't want it by defunding it, and you could build up something you wanted government to do by funding it. And a lot of people will be more open to that. Like, well, actually, you know, so you still have to pay your taxes. Yep, but you get to choose how it's how it's used. Yep. And I think it does open the mind. I've never actually had that conversation with somebody that wasn't like, well, they'll never do it, but yeah, I think it would be, yeah, okay, great. So you have to think about why they would never do it. The entire premise against anarchy, against agorism, against voluntarism, against the simple belief that all acts between adults should be consensual, and that theft is theft, no matter what your title is, and theft is... Is taking something from somebody else without their permission in order to deprive them of it. That's the that. If you look it up in Webster's dictionary, I might have had a word transposed or something, but that's basically the definition. Tax is theft by the definition of the word theft. You don't have my permission. You take it without my permission, and you take it in order to deprive me of it, so that you can do something else that I don't want to do with it. So the whole summation is that is necessary. Because all these products and services that government provides are needed and wouldn't exist if we didn't tax people to fund them. But you just said you'd be open to deciding how that money was spent by your government. Well, then why can't you choose who to spend it with? Well, I need security. Well, okay, you could pay taxes and you can have security from the police department, Or you could have the portion of your taxes back, and you and other people in your neighborhood can get together and hire private security to provide you with security. And if they don't do a good job, you can fire them and hire a new firm that does the job more to your liking. That's insanity, isn't it? It really isn't. It all goes back to this, guys. You don't want a drill bit. You want a hole. You don't want a drill bit. You want a hole. You don't want a hammer. You want the nail into the board. If somebody, if somebody offers you a hammer or a nail gun and they drive the same size nail. We're not talking about like a Brad nailer and you need a framing nail. You got a framing nail and a hammer or a nail gun with framing nails in it. Which one are you going to take? You're going to take the one that serves you better, right? Now, maybe you can't afford a nail gun. Well, then you buy a hammer. And if you buy a hammer and you build enough things with it, eventually you'll be able to afford a nail gun. Or maybe you'll be able to go in with some other people and buy a nail gun and share the resource. Like the entire world is made up of these choices. Government is literally the denial of choice. Under the illusion of choice. Because you get to pick somebody to represent you when your money's stolen. It's the illusion of choice. I really think it's a good conversation to have. Those of you that struggle with getting it, just start having conversations about, well, what if you could pick and choose how your tax dollars were spent and then let them tell you something stupid like you already do because you vote. I think when you get to a person that says that, they're not ready for the conversation yet. You need to go to something else like, I don't know, what's a better taco, steak, or chicken. I mean, really. Okay, next one. So long-term listener to the show, Dylan, um, I've gotten tremendous feedback from this guy for years. Uh, he works in the electrical industry. And he was not exactly on board when I first exposed this audience to Tony Seba with his timeline to moving to what we call alternative energy today, solar, wind, electric vehicles, etc. cetera. But it didn't take him too long when he started digging into it and looking at what he was doing in his industry what he was being told and what was going on, to realize that he was probably more right than wrong. Right? But again, this is a person that started out with I don't think so. Well, he just sent me an email and it says Tony Siva's twenty thirty timeline ain't looking so crazy now, is it? Question mark. And there's an article electric vehicles to dominate sales five years sooner than expected. And this is not from saveatreebyhuggingit.com. This is from Ernest & Young Analytics. This is advice that is given about finance and investing from a company that tends to be really good at it, especially in the mid to long term. Where all these companies get in trouble is when they try to tell you what to do with your money this week. But Ernest & Young, across 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, there are very few people with a track record that's as solid as Ernest & Young. And so you can read that article you want if you want yourself. It's in the show notes today. I want to talk more about what Dylan had to say. He said, from a mar- market perspective, areas that will have to boom to make it come true, AI-related fir- firms, the robots really are coming, JP. And JP, he means John, John Pugliano. So yes and no. So the AI-related firms are going to be necessary for the cars to drive themselves, not for the cars to be powered by electricity. So... This is about both autonomous vehicles and those vehicles, autonomous vehicles being electric. And I agree. That, it, that has to happen. But I think that's a lot of it is already here. If you wanted to make vehicles able to operate completely autonomously tomorrow, the actual variable is human beings. If we had no vehicles but all the technology that we have today available to us, if like, all the existing cars vanished into thin air... We started from square one, and you never gave people the ability to drive a car. 90% of the places that cars can go could be done tomorrow with existing technology. People create variables. If you have the vehicles communicating with each other, and the vehicles are making the decision, I'm not saying there would never be any accidents. There would be a hell of a lot less of them. All right, So that's coming, and it has to learn to deal with us. And there will be less of us driving every year, Going forward after, I'd say, about five more years. Uh, He says, battery tech process firms, not just the chemistry, but the standardization and interchangeability. Yeah, on the battery tech, that's something that we're going to struggle with. When we think of electricity, my wife just found a really new, great oscillating fan. It will be coming to T-SPAS soon. It's quiet. It's powerful. It works. It's expensive for an oscillating fan, but it's worth the money. It's very different from the cheap little plastic box fans that you can get for 20 bucks. that when you turn them on, they sound like, bah! and they move a lot of air, but they're annoying, and they don't oscillate, and they're on the ground, right? and they're cheap, and they're plastic, but they're also the same. I can order any device, by and large, that runs on you know grid-powered electricity in the United States, and when it comes to my house, it has two little prongs, maybe three prongs, and I plug it in the wall, and it works. That's interoperability, and it's also what you'd call backwards compatibility. If somebody makes a better fan than this one, it will still have that same plug. It won't have a proprietary plug that somebody has to come install in my house and attach unicorns that fart rainbows to my roof to make it work. It will just work with what we have. There is some issue there. Consumers in middle America, i.e. all the F-150 people, are going to demand 10-minute fill-up which is limited by current flow into the battery. In other words, if I'm low, I don't want to wait more than 10 minutes after I stick something in my vehicle just because it's not a gas uh, a gas spout anymore. I want if it's electric, I don't. I want 10 minutes. I want to go down the road. And let's face it, most of us don't like when the guy in front of us at the gas pump they're all full. We get in behind him, and he let his gas go all the way to empty. And maybe that pump's running a little slow that day. and you got to wait 10 minutes. For one guy, you're generally sitting there tapping your foot, listening to your podcast with me on it, hopefully, chilling you out a little bit. But you want, like, come on, man, let's go. And if that guy, like, didn't pay at the pump and he leaves his car in front of you and walks in to pay later, right, okay? Yeah, so how do we handle that? I'll tell you some ways I think we handle that. Um, Changing infrastructure firms. There are multi-hundred billions or even trillion dollars worth of gas stations out there. There'll be significant electrical changeover necessary to support all the wheels on the road. Yeah, gas isn't going away anytime soon though. This is going to be a very long tail ebbing off of petroleum as a fuel supply. And so what what you can see happening here is a much simpler transition of this this place has, you know, six pump islands and maybe a couple of years from now it has Five and one electric, and then four and two electric, and like that's that's that. I think that can happen. Um, and again, standardization. Who gets the VCR of the Chargers wins. Who makes the the one that everybody buys? I think you're more looking at connectivity than the underlying technology there. I think there'll be tons of competition there, and I don't know that we'll ever get to one or even two on that. Uh, to meet the 10-minute fill-up, some sort of battery change-out infrastructure. I had this idea, and I thought I was a genius, that basically your car would be like your DeWalt drill. The battery's dead. Well, we don't have to charge the battery immediately. Take the battery out, put it in the charger, put a charged battery in the drill. Why not do it with a car? Turns out Elon Musk is not stupid, and he thought about this years ago. And back in 2012, he had a car show where they swapped a battery from the car. Maybe this can be done but as of yet, it's not cost effective. But if you standardize the battery, the form factor of the battery for electric vehicles, or maybe there's like, you know, a, a slow capacity, you know, like a, a regular capacity and a high capacity, but the form factor, how they connect, it could be done. Otherwise, you're, you know, think about, think about the world of power tools. Jack, can I borrow one of your batteries? Yeah. What kind of tools you got? Rigid? Nope. Why not? I got DeWalt. Ask Bill. Bill's got Milwaukee. It could be the same thing. You have to standardize if you're going to be able to swap the battery. And maybe electric utilities, if we can be creative enough, with enough CapEx put into it, that's capital uh, into there, uh, build out those wires and end-user interfaces to provide our product. In other words, I think he's talking about charging at home. That's already something we can do. However, I want you to think about load on the grid, and if everybody goes home with an empty car and plugs the car in at the same time every day, whether they need to or not, let's say you have an electric vehicle with a 250 mile range on it, and you drive about 30 miles. What are you going to do when you come home? I mean, you still got another 210 miles on that vehicle. tomorrow you can drive another 30 miles or 40 miles or whatever it is. You can drive 4 or 5 days without charging your car. What are you going to do when you get home? What do you do with your cell phone after you have you talk on it all day, whether it's, you know, you look at it, it says 60% on it, you plug it in. So, what we're going to have to have to make home charging work is enough grid intelligence to say mm, you can't have all of it right now. Or you can, but you can't. And so that everybody's vehicles are charged by morning. But I think what we can also have is you don't have to charge at that super high rate of speed. If you get home at 6 o'clock at night and don't leave leave till 6 o'clock in the morning, home charging doesn't necessarily have to get you back to completely full. It just has to keep you going enough. And this is why I think for a time, a lot of these electric only vehicles are going to start actually shifting back to more of a hybrid model, very small on demand generators that use gas until this infrastructure problem. This is the only way to really make this work, Ed Wallace, who's a local guy, Dallas Fort Worth, guy I have a lot of respect for, I've tried to get this guy to do his show as a podcast for years. He won't do it. He fears podcasting because he does not understand it. He's an older guy and he just doesn't want to learn new things anymore. It seems like, um, and he has a segment. By the way, if you if you live in a Dallas Fort Worth area, he's worth listening to for this segment alone. It's called Backside of History. It's like a fifteen minute segment. I'm like, just make that a podcast, dude. And you don't want to do it. Um, he's a huge fan of electric vehicles, and he was talking about how this this myth that electric vehicles can't charge at charging stations right now is ridiculous. And he was talking about, the, at the time he was doing he was talking about um, an evacuation from Florida. And he's like, if you owned a Tesla and you had it fully charged in Miami and you needed to drive to North Carolina, he laid out where all the places where you could stop and how you wouldn't even have to stop at all of them and you would never have a problem getting your vehicle charged and getting out of there. Well, that's because one quarter of a percent of those vehicles right now are electric. That's why. That's why. He made a good case that right now you'd be better off, it'd be easier they trying to get out of there filling up on gasoline to make that drive to evacuate. He wasn't wrong. But if you had 10% of those vehicles be electric, no, it's not the infrastructure's not there. So, yeah, there's a lot that has to happen here. But I do think home charging is going to be a big part of it. I think things like power walls in the home. Because now what we can do is we can dump power from the power wall into the car and then over time recharge the power wall. And of course that's Tesla's solution, and I don't know that it'll all be power walls. That's that's Elon Musk's dream. A power wall in every home. And by the way, that's your your electrical provider, that's their dream too. They would love to have that. That would be the biggest battery bank ever, and it would be decentralized, yet they would have centralized access to it. And uh, I know there's people who have some very scary you know they'll turn me off whether they'll turn you off whether you have a power wall or not. If you if you are under any illusions that the power company can't shut you down, this this winter and what happened in Texas should show you otherwise. So if you give them tools to be better able to manage power on the grid, they're going to do a better job at allowing for some incompetence, right? But I'm just saying they're going to do a better job than they would otherwise. And so this tax coming, and it's not coming as fast as some people would like but it's coming a lot faster than many people acknowledge. I'll leave it at that. Next up, this one comes from Adrian. He says, "Spirgo Domus strikes again with the money market fund managers not liking the fact that money market funds are very liquid and they want to regulate the liquidity away. I'm going to do this one real quick, but I have talked about this in the past. That's why Adrian sent it. But this is the headline of the article. Global regulators try again to eliminate money market hazards well they just want to fix the problem no they want see adrian has graduated from jack spirico university on fenords at least my fenords one-on-one course he's got an a triple plus in they're not trying to eliminate the hazard that exists in a money market fund they're trying to regulate away the liquidity because they don't like the liquidity the case made in the article is that during the, the onset of COVID and people panicking and wanting to make sure that their funds were available and not lost and, and using funds, because since a lot of prices crashed on a lot of things, a lot of people like went, you know what? You know what? When the stock market crashed by like 15,000 points and they had $80,000 sitting in a money market fund, they bought into stocks. So they cashed in 80 grand, boom, and they went into Exxon or whatever. And what happened was the money market funds almost collapsed again, just like they almost did in 2008, 2009, and like they almost did in 2001, and like in 1987, again, right? And so the issue here is that money market funds play fast and loose the way the, the banks in general do with money, with interinstitution lending, etc., but with no FDIC to back them up and prop them up. A money market fund, if you're not aware, is basically a dollar fund, sort of. It pays, some, it pays a little bit better interest than a savings account. And it's designed for money that is a little more midterm than what you would do with a savings account, and it pays a little bit more interest. And because they don't make sure that they have enough money to cover all the deposits at all times, sometimes when a lot of the money goes out at once instead of a little bit over time, they cannot cover everything. So what is the solution? The solution is to make sure that you can cover the deposits into the money market funds that you have at all times. That would be eliminating the hazard. Taking away the right of the individual to liquidate their funds is not eliminating the hazard. It is regulating away the liquidity, which is the, re- the only reason someone will hold money in a money market fund anyway. Almost every other investment out there over six months to a year, to a couple of years, anything even like a, a mid-short term, I guess you'd call it, an investment, is going to out-produce a money market fund. A freaking CD should out-produce a money market fund over a year. That's as safe as it gets. But I don't have the liquidity with a CD. It's this middle path between a savings account and a CD is basically what a money market fund is presented as. It's not what it really is, but it's what's presented as. And so since they can't manage their own system, they're like, well, if we just didn't let people as easily access their funds, we wouldn't have a problem. Basically, they're trying to prevent what we would think of as a bank run on money market funds. And they want to prevent it not by fixing the problem, but by regulating your ability to use the fund as promised away. See, classic Fenord. Well done, Adrian. It's all the time, guys. Just start reading headlines. All you got to do is start seeing finords. Read the headline. Make a conclusion from the headline, which you normally shouldn't do, but this is good for this exercise. Then read the article. Determine the actual conclusion you come to by logically analyzing the article, and then write that down. And then look at the two of them written down side by side and compare the two. And it, in no time at all, you'll be able to see finords from a mile away because they're formulaic and how they're written because journalists have no creativity. Journalists have no original thought anymore. Journalists are following a formula, and since they're following a formula, the formula has to follow by nature a pattern, and then the pattern can be recognized. Simple. Next up, another person saying, Jack was right! BTC ETF coming from ARC. I hope to have access to this in my Roth 401k. I said you will if it actually passes, and I looked it up, and it's on CNBC. I have the article there. And again, ARC Invest. Is Kathy Woods investment firm? It is not ARC the cryptocurrency. The two are not related in any way so that I don't create any confusion at all. What's more important, and you can you read the article if you want to, but it's more important here, is Kathy Woods and her people announced they're creating this ETF. It will be under uh, the ticker symbol is at least their plan anyway. What is it? Uh B, I think is what it is. ARKB, A-R-K-B, will be the ticker symbol for this. It doesn't exist yet because the SEC has not approved it. Well, the SEC has not approved any Bitcoin ETFs yet. At all. They also haven't said no. They punted again. They had a kind of set their own kind of timeline. We expect to issue a decision by, and the word again is coming up a lot today, and once again, we're not going to do it yet. So a few years ago, they took this up and they said, no, the market's not ready yet. We're not comfortable yet doing this. Between then and now, a little country you might have heard of, Canada, has approved multiple Bitcoin ETFs and Trust me, the SEC doesn't give two shits that Jack Spierko thinks it's stupid that Canada can have an ETF for their their retirement funds, but the United States can't. They do care about the people that bankroll them. They do care about the multi-gazillionaires. They do care about the Goldman Sachs, etc. And they do care about firms even the size of ARK Invest. They do care about, you know, multi-hundred millionaires and above. They care. They exist to serve them, not you. They exist to serve the gazillionaires. That is their purpose. I know that you've been taught otherwise. I'm telling you, you've been lied to. So now they have all this pressure from people with lots of power and control inside their own apparatus of governance through manipulation of things like, you know, the Congress, through lobbying and and other things and different pressures being applied. And they're not Going to say no. Because if they were going to say no, they'd have simply said no. So instead of saying yes, they keep saying basically not yet, not now. Now, here's what I think is going on. And I've been talking about this in pieces and parts for a while now. I believe there is a consorted effort to push down the price of Bitcoin as much as possible in the near term, and that we are not seeing a typical bull market turn into a bear market has become the normal course of things in the world of Bitcoin. I believe when shit like uh, Elon Musk and Michael Saylor and all this stuff started blowing up and then countries start doing it, that the people in power have come to an understanding. This cannot, shall not, and will not be stopped. It will not go away. It will not go under the rug. And they know that Bitcoin is the king of cryptocurrency. Not just because it has the biggest market cap, because honest to God, it is the king. It is the Google of, you know, it's Google, there is search, and there's lots of search engines that do a lot of things, but Google owns the market. And money is different than technology, so the analogy only goes so far. If you're the king of currency, It is much more difficult to knock off Bitcoin than it is to knock off Google. Much more difficult. Much more difficult. And they know this. And they know that it is going to become, maybe not the global reserve currency, but a global reserve of value. And they know that many countries are going to adopt it as legal tender, and they know that can't be stopped, and they know they can pass any law that they want, and there is nothing that they can ever do to prevent you and I from exchanging value digitally in a peer-to-peer mechanism. If you can't shut down freaking file sharing, illegal file sharing, you are not going to shut down Bitcoin because you're, you're operating at so much higher of a level. And I think that a lot of the institutions have made a choice. We're going to do this too. And things went so far, so fast, I think a consorted effort went in place. Let's Let's get it as low as we can. We'll get China to ban Bitcoin again. Lots of against today. You know. And and we'll talk trash about it. Get get Elon to tweet something about energy. Come on. Tell him him we're going to take away one of his contracts if he doesn't. And I do. I mean, I think it's an overt conspiracy. And you can manipulate the price to a degree. And with the most attack and flood we have ever seen, you're still looking at 30 grand range. And people say, it halved in value. No, it tripled in value over the last two years. And I think the move is, before we all move, let's work together so that when we all move, we get as much as we can. The problem is, there's only so much to be gotten. There's only so much to be gotten. There is a finite amount here. And you're never going to have a central bank digital currency currency. Capable of doing this, being what Bitcoin is. So that's what's going on, guys. And I would say keep an eye on it because you have the ability to kind of recognize when we're hitting that point. Are we there yet? I don't know. We could be, but we're going to have some time. You're going to see when this starts to turn, and I would be getting what you can while you can Everybody always wants to write me and wants to buy Bitcoin when it's at an all-time high. Goes in half, then everybody freaks out. No, when it goes in half, buy some. What if it goes down more? Buy some more. What if it goes down? Buy the effing dip. Good Lord. All right, next up. Um, Matt said, I was thinking about your occasional prediction of virtual nations. It's making more and more sense. I was listening to this online video production company, CEO, years ago about how they got started as early like pioneers. He said they noticed the first things that come online were the lowest amount of data. First, it was text-based internet. Then audio was introduced, followed by images. So he could assume video was next and started as a content creator. He now employs 250 people in Austin, Texas. Knowing all that, it makes sense that a digital currency like Bitcoin was the next big milestone and answer to the problem of how do we bring currency online. And that's a very important line. That's a very important statement. How do we bring currency online? People are like, we've had PayPal and Visa. No, 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 no. Those were online methods of payment, not online currency. Very astute there, dude. Matt from Montana. Um, so it's probably safe to assume that one of the next milestones is something like virtual nations. In other words, all these technologies lead together to the point where you get to the virtual nation. I don't know how many of you really looked at what just happened in Miami But it was something like 22,000 Bitcoiners descended on Miami. You literally couldn't get a hotel room or a private airplane in Miami. It's been likened to the new Davos. The hell with the old world money. This is the new world of money. The whales came in and ate everything, and then thousands and thousands of just regular people and mid-tier people, etc., all were there. And they were all there for one thing only. Not cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. And then this other movement started up. Like There were so many people who wanted to be involved. They wanted to be sponsors. They wanted to be part of the event. And they were trying to give the company behind it, which is Bitcoin Magazine, money. And they're like, No. If you are actively promoting a cryptocurrency that conv- c- competes with Bitcoin, we don't want you to say Bitcoin conference, not a cryptocurrency conference. So eventually everybody got the ass, and they created a, a thing at another venue that ran at the same time called Shitcoin 2021. And it was a huge success. And there were people that were like, I love Bitcoin, and I love alternative cryptocurrencies, so I'm going to go spend some time at both places. Did you just see two virtual nations spontaneously form for a time and some people be loyal citizens of one or the other and some be dual citizens? Are we misunderstanding virtual nations? I get it wrong because I always saw virtual nations as kind of like it had to be organized with some sort of like website, web presence of something. And then you would have some sort of digital identification and what if we just create a world where transactions are seamless and trustless and don't need a third party, even if we choose to use one, but when we choose to use one, we choose the third party, and we never have a centralized third party again like a banking system. At that point, have we not created less than a virtual nation, the thing that's actually necessary for virtual nations to exist, a borderless world? A world where my ability to do business with you is unimpeded by anybody. And that if you're across the street or across the planet, it doesn't change. There is no one who can get in the way of our ability to do business. And is the only thing necessary to start seeing virtual nations pop up everywhere and that a nation is truly a group of people bound by common ideals that work together and advocate for and defend each other. That's a nation. That's what a nation is. A nation is not a place on a map. That's a country. That's a state. It would be a nation state. A nation is just that. It's a group of people that are bound together in some way. That binding can be non-consensual. You were born, you have citizenship of this place, you belong here, and you are subject to our rules whether you wish to be or not. And the process to free yourself of that is long and arduous. I mean, you would think if I went down, I'm not going to do this right, but if I went down to El Salvador right now and spent three bitcoins, then El Salvador will give me, um, I'll become an immediate national. They'll give me a passport, it says El Salvador on it. I'm not a citizen, but I am a, 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 a resident, permanent resident of El Salvador. I can stay there, live there, travel under their protection, etc. But the United States will still say the money you make is ours. You have to pay your taxes. You don't live in the United States, etc. You still have to pay your taxes. There's some things I can get out of, but overall they still claim ownership of me. I have to actually obtain citizenship somewhere so I have a citizenship, and then I have to denounce a citizenship so I have to choose another captor. That's, That's how nation states work. A virtual nation would work because people chose to associate. A a, a consensual nation might be a better way to describe it. And can you really write out the nation states? (sighs) I have to tell you, if we get into a world where we're not arguing about whether or not Bitcoin can hit a 100,000 or whether it can hit a million, but we're in a world where we're starting to argue about whether or not Bitcoin is ever going to hit $10 million, the amount of power, control, and wealth some people will have in the space, I think will make it almost inevitable. But in that point, those people still will have to compete for followings, et etc. And micro-nations will still be able to exist, and micro-nations between the macro-nations. See, once the space is defined, then the only thing that controls is, board, you know, is the barrier to entry. And you're talking about a space that, once fully defined, will have almost no barrier to entry. So I think it's interesting. Next up, Andrew sent me a thing. He said, is it okay to let a chicken feeder tray go empty? A bag of feed says never to let the feeder go empty. However, my chickens are getting kitchen and garden scraps. I also sprout sunflower seeds for them every day. I'll be adding barley sprouts this week as well. I have six uh, uh, amber Link birds and 12-square-foot coop attached to a 45-square-foot run. They have access to an additional 25 square foot grass area for a few hours every evening. Thanks for the show. It has been life changing. Andrew in Colorado. Well, Andrew in Colorado, you've done a good part of thinking through the logical process here. This does not apply to you. There are two reasons that a company that makes chicken feed would say never let their feed go empty. Okay, One would be they want to sell you more chicken feed. So if you're if if they give everybody that buys from them, and you know people people that make and sell bag chicken feed in in box stores, et cetera, right? They're not making ten bags a day. They're making thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bags, probably per hour that they're putting out into a distribution network. Huge market. If everybody's doing this, there's certain little kind of propeller head mathematical spreadsheet running individuals, you know, CFOs and accountants that have figured out. We'll sell X percent more feed a year, and that's a shitload when we're measuring things by you know multiple metric tons, and here's how much more money we'll make by including this advice on our bag. This percentage of people will do it, this is what it means, and this is how much a chicken will eat if it's given unlimited amounts of food. That's one reason they would do it, and probably why. There's another reason you would do it. There's a lot of people that have coop and runs, and the chickens don't ever get out, They're never fed anything but feed, and if they've eaten all the feed and you let the feeder go empty and you routinely let the feeder go empty, then you can get in a place where you're actually starving your birds. And since you're probably – if you're doing that, you're probably feeding some sort of fortified feed or something like that. Like they can go into nutrient deficiency before they go into um, like a physical weight loss problem. So you're also safeguarding against the stupid. Somebody will lock the bird up, throw some feed in there, and not worry about it for a week. And now you're starving your birds, and that's cruel. So there could be two different reasons for the same piece of advice, and it's probably both. So then you have to be a free-thinking, independent person that decides for yourself, does this apply to me or not? And your instance no, I don't think it applies to you. I also don't think it would apply to you if you knew how many birds you had. You had an allotment per bird, let's say... I think most chicken breeds is something like 0.35 pounds of feed per day. It's either 0.3 or 0.4 pounds. And since you knew that, you did that. So, you know, if it was 10, you'd give four pounds of, uh, of feed, right? And as long as you kept an eye on it and said, you know, like you don't have a pig and somebody that's being pigged out on and he's not getting enough food and maybe you need to give that, give a little bit more to make up for that. And you fed every day. If the, if the feeder goes empty, And the birds are happy, that means you're doing it perfectly. Now, if you take this to somebody that's tractoring or free-ranging, you actually have to do something totally different. You actually have to reduce the feed so that you force the work. Birds are lazy. They don't want to work any harder than they have to. I mean, if they're out there and a big giant grasshopper jumps in front of them, that's delicious. That's dessert. They're going to eat it, but they're not going to work hard. So the number for a duck is four tenths of a pound. Actually, I'm sorry, 0.35. Maybe that's where I'm getting my mix up. 0.35 to 0.4 pounds, depending on the breed of feed per day. So a light breed like a runner, 0.35 pounds. A heavy breed like a Saxony or a Rowan is going to be 0.4 pounds a day. I feed my ducks a quarter pound of feed per day per duck. (gasps) Check, they'll die. No, they have to work. They're free and they're let loose every day. They have two acres to wander on. They have everything a duck could want. And they're also supplemented with things like water plants and stuff like that. If I were to give them as much as they want, they won't work as hard. They won't work as hard. If I underfeed them, considering there's not enough here for them to fully utilize, they won't be as healthy as they need to be to work as hard as I want them to. So it's a balance. It's like paying an employee. You pay them enough that they won't quit, but you don't overpay them to where they get too lazy and think they're worth more than they really are. It's exactly the same process. So just a way to think logically through this and see all the different viewpoints of it. Um Question here is is your advice to get out of the cities based on the World Economic Forum's Agenda twenty thirty, which would also strap into the Great Reset. I'm a rural guy who's lived in big cities and got your advice to leave the cities. I originally attributed it to supply chain issues, nine meals until chaos, no jobs. Type chaos, but lately I've been reading more about the World Economic Forum and Agenda 2030. Their ideas about smart cities, smart sewers, et cetera, seem like equally good reason to avoid cities. Until the schemes implode, I was curious as to what exactly inspired your advice to get out of the cities. By the way, I'm taking your advice and buying 500 acres. Good for you, dude. Uh, you're really inspiring this 30-something. 30-something and buying 500 acres. Really good for you, man. I'm proud of you, Tim. Um, yes and no. All of these things are concerning. Just-in-time inventory, etc. Here's more what I'm thinking. Let's say the World Economic Forum's Greater Reset is a total flop. It just flops on its ass, and it just doesn't work. And it doesn't, destroy, it doesn't take down the cities, except the ones that are going to go anyway. We'll get to that in a second. And let's say their agenda 2030 also is a tremendous flop. I've said a lot of times, you know, people say they want this and they want that and they want this. And and my grandmother used to say all the time, well, want in one hand and shit in the other and see which one fills up first. Just because somebody wants something, even somebody that's got quite a bit of power doesn't mean they get it. And so even if that happens, the way I look at this is, first of all, many of these cities, in my, my opinion, are irredeemable already. It is more the local governance of them and the willingness of people that live there to allow it to continue to the point where I think we've reached a point of no return. When you have a city where literally a human being, if you own a business in this city and you have a storefront, you have a little step up that comes into your storefront, a a human being can go up onto that step in front of your doorstep and take a shit. And I know that sounds disgusting, but it's what's happening in these cities. Right in front of the door of your business. And if you do anything to that person when they do this, the police will not arrest them, but they will arrest you. I think you've gone over the Rubicon. You are done. There is no fixing this. And what is happening, and when I said, I've been saying to get out since 2008. Okay? Since I first started TSP, I've been saying to get out of these places. But when we got to a point where people started doing it, that's when I said you really have to go. And this is this is a, a global lesson here. And one of the problems that we create when we think we're helping people. So when we have places where there's like refugees, they need to get out, man. And I'm not talking about like the language translators that worked with our soldiers in Afghanistan for five years and they're going to be killed when we leave. Okay, we owe them, whether you are for or against the action we did, they helped us, they trusted us, we're leaving them out to dry, we owe them. We should help those people, period, because we caused their problem. But when you have a country that's just kind of in meltdown mode and we start saying, well, we'll take people, we'll take people. The people who are the most motivated leave. Sometimes they're the doctors, and sometimes they're the leaders, and sometimes they're the cab drivers. But they're all the most motivated. Leaving takes courage, even a bad place. So what happens when we're like, well, we're going to take these people in from XYZ? We create a brain drain, and we create an energy drain. Despite all of the, the venom spewed against these people, and there are bad people among them, 10%. Scumbag theory applies, right? And knowing who they are would probably be a good idea. But leave that aside. In the end, we usually are getting the best. Now, we not maybe we're not getting the best computer programmer. What I mean by the best, we're getting people who will do the things that are necessary to succeed in life. And thereby, we're taking them from that place. We can have that discussion on another day if it troubles you. It just is, Okay. Now, let's flip this over to states and cities. You have cities like L.A. and San Francisco and Portland and Chicago and New York. When that exodus started, that was last fall when I said, get out now, get out now, get out, get out, get out. Right? And I'm like, I know I've been saying this forever, but now get out. When I could see the exodus coming, that's the black hole. That is the place from which there is no return. It is such a dense gravity that even light cannot escape it. That is where these cities are going to implode on themselves. If you add Agenda 2030, if you add the Great Reset, if you add globalization, if you add the maniacal control of these politicians who won't stop people from destroying a storefront, but they will arrest people for speaking improperly or for going somewhere without covering their face with a face diaper, like... I don't know why you're still there. And so my big reason for it is I don't know why you're still there. That is actually my biggest reason for saying get out. I don't it, it's almost like you want to ruin your life and you want to punish yourself and whatever you claim you have in value, you know it's it, it's like it's like holding a stock that's declared bankruptcy and refusing to sell it and get what you can for it. Like there is no redemption. It's catching a falling knife. And it's like you're punishing yourself is how I feel. Now, I know there's some people that actually might be able to answer the question, why are you still there intelligently and articulately? And if so, and you want to play that that play, I get it. But the other side of it, because this is now a thing, because the exodus is here, the cost of doing it keeps going up. The cost of where you land, not the land you buy, where you land, that land you land on, the place you go to, is going up while the value of what you're holding goes down. And even people say, "Well, my, you know, even you said bad cities and whatever. My city's like a great, not really very good place, but yeah, it, my, actually, my house is doing pretty good right now. Not compared, not compared to what you want somewhere else. The properties that have skyrocketed are the really desirable residential areas in free states." And rural properties. That's what's skyrocketing. Even shitty rural properties still look cheap. But go look at what they were selling for four years ago. And look at what they're selling for now. I feel very much, to a large degree, there is a an opening that is slowly closing on it being relatively affordable and easy to translocate yourself out of these places. Not because somebody's going to put up a fence and not let you out, but because the market is going to put up many fences that keep you from getting in that your dream of doing something like this young man of buying 500 acres and managing cattle or something is becoming not not no matter how much money you make, especially if you're making all your money and dollars that are being destroyed through inflation, you can't catch up. To the delta, So you need to use creativity and logic and reason and planning and be asking, how do I do this now? Because you still can. And it's harder now than it was 10 years ago. But there seems to be this misguided belief in people's minds that 10 years from now it'll be easier than it is now. My urgency is, I think, if you don't want to do it ever... You don't care about my urgency. So the only people I'm talking to when I say do it now, do it fast, figure it out. And do it now doesn't mean quit your job and leave this second unless you have a way to do it. It means start trying to do it now. I'm only talking to people that I think are like, well, I want to do that someday. And I'm telling you, if you don't do it now, someday ain't coming for a lot of you. There will be a point where it will be incredibly difficult to do because there's only so much, so many places available to do something like this, and those places are becoming more desirable and having heavier and heavier competition while the value of these other places is in infinite decline. And even if that's short-term bumps, that's all they are. Society is making a choice right now. And it's choosing to separate itself from this high-density population. While you're right, these Davos assholes, Agenda 2030, Greater Reset, World Economic, they want to put everybody together like cockroaches. They all want us to live like insects in colonies. But I'm not so worried about that. I'm worried about you not having the alternative. Because they are going to start building apartment buildings that are actually HUD developments in the suburbs. All over the place. That's their next plan. They're going to do that. They're going to do that. Occasionally, politicians tell you the truth. You know? See, I have a long memory. Remember when Mitt Romney was running for president? And he wasn't ever going to get elected president. But he made a very careful promise that if, if you elect me president, that's more like Bush, and I can't do Romney. Um, if you make, elect me president, I'll make sure that we are... Energy independent by the end of my administration. And then he said North American energy independent, like a, like a, like an appendage, right? Like, Like, like an amendment to the comment. Well, North American independent, right? You know, son of a bitch. If that didn't happen anyway, even with Barack Obama, Trump did it. Trump did a lot for American independent energy, but by the time Obama's term was over. North America was energy independent if it chose to be. We were a net exporter of energy before Trump took office. Why? Because it was already there. The trend was already there. When Trump was telling you about what they wanted to do with urban development, And moving projects and high density popul- high density buildings into the suburbs and basically having the city eat the suburbs and come one giant city. He wasn't lying to you. Sure, he was using it to try to get elected. But as a guy that's kind of involved in the, the building and construction industry and then was privy to all the information that the president of the United States has, it wasn't a real big jump to get there. And that's what's going on. And that's why my advice is get out, get out, get out. Because I believe that most of you want to. If you don't want to, pick a, pick the best place you can to stay and get there now because it ain't going to get any easier. With that, let's go wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, our item of the day today is the uh, DeWalt drill combo kit, and it's a 20-volt max XR cordless brushless kit, and it's important it's a brushless kit. This is the best kind of entry ramp, in my opinion, into the DeWalt 20-volt tool line if you don't have it already. The drill alone in this set is an amazingly powerful drill, and this is kind of the upper end impact driver that goes with it. it comes with two batteries and a charger and a case that you'll probably use for fishing gear. Cause I mean, I don't know anybody uses their DeWalt cases for the tools. They go on the wall or whatever. Um, I guess somebody does. I don't. Anyway, um, it's on sale for $229. This is the same set that I brought you earlier near it was on sale for $199, and I was like, buy it and buy it now. I'm not saying that today. I'm saying if you need Power tools, and you're going to want to get into Dewalt. This is a hell of a deal. The normal retail on this is about $300. Sometimes it's like $299. Sometimes it's $289. Sometimes it's $319. $229 is a hell of a deal. $199 is a deal that comes around usually like once a year on this. Right? So it's a great deal. If you went out and bought this independently, it would be around $400. If you went out and bought, a battery, uh, a, t- two batteries with a charger, the drill is a bear tool, and the driver is a bear tool. It'd be about 400 bucks. So it's a great deal, and it's certainly worth picking up. And remember, always check. I talked about this last week. Uh, the Amazon Renewed line as well, because if you see DeWalt tools on Amazon Renewed or Ridgid or Milwaukee or any of that shit, it's brand new stuff that was returned. There's no there is no one at Amazon rebuilding a freaking DeWalt drill. It just doesn't happen. But even if you're not in the market for tools, if you're in the market for anything at all, you're going to buy something online today, go to tspaz.com before you buy it. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Survivor, and the whole week is going to be Survivor songs. So since we do four shows a week plus Miyagi mornings, now it'll be four Survivor songs that's uh, this work. This song is called Ever Since the World Began. And I've said this before and we've played Survivor for you. I think that Survivor is largely underrated due to their success from the Rocky movies. And I'll be playing you a a, a song this this week that was supposed to be in one of the Rocky movies and ended up not being in it and probably should have been. Um, I think if you're younger, it's hard to even understand this. If you were alive in the 80s and a Rocky movie came out, you saw it or you were at least aware of it And so when a song like Eye of the Tiger came on the radio, it was the Rocky song. And while that made it really popular and had a big boost to the band, and they certainly made a lot of money because of it, it kind of became like that was their theme, and people really didn't listen to their other music. And when I've said this before, people say, you know, their music's kind of formulaic. So I think we have to judge music based on the time that it came out and how it compares to other music that came out in its space. And there's definitely some formulaic, Components to some of Survivor's music, but it was an '80s band, okay? I mean, it was like until now it was the decade of formulaic music. Uh, I think the music has gotten so formulaic now that like the most formulaic '80s music seems original compared to what what's the crap that's being crapped out now. Um, But this song, to me. There's some components to it that are very much like, this could be from an 80s movie or something, right? The the time is obvious that this song's from. Don't go nuts on me with what I'm about to say. I'm going to quantify it. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to put some caveats in it. This song, to me, is actually very indicative of something more like you would expect to come from Queen. Okay. This does not have Freddie Mercury's vocals in it. Right? This is not, que- I'm not saying it's as good as Queen. I'm saying it makes me think of the type of music Queen did. This song is so beyond formulaic that it actually seems to be formulaic in some ways because it sounds so good. When I say it's Queen-like, what I mean is the music that Queen made, what they went through to get the final product was far more than somebody writes a song, somebody puts some score together, and they record it a couple times and decide what they like best. It was agonized over. It was like we need to add this, we need to do that. This song has those types of elements in it. They didn't do what Queen did, not to that level. But I would also say that had Queen during the Freddie Mercury years done this song, no one would have said that doesn't seem like something Queen would do. In fact, it would have been embraced. This is an incredible piece of music by an incredibly underrated band. Now, on top of it, it comes across like a love song, right? That everything is destined for us. But if you actually look at the words, it leaves room for that. But the real message of this song is that there is a destiny. There is a destiny for us all. And we have to continue with that as our core belief system. That whatever is to be, will be. But my role in it is to make it so. And if I do what I'm supposed to do, then destiny will do what it's supposed to do. So it's actually an incredibly deep song and an amazing piece of music from an underrated band. And with that, it's been Jack Spierkoe with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I'll never know what brought me here As if somebody led my hand It seems I hardly had to steer my course was planned. plan The destiny guides us And by its we rise and fall Time enough to catch our breath again